This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Here in the sporty and unfamiliar confines of the Lucas Oil Stadium. It's the nearly as impressive 51st edition of the convention that invented the role-playing game. Gen Con. Con. Depending on what you ask us, stuff we might talk about in this episode include... Tabletop and adventure gaming. Time travel. Tradecraft. Cinema. Occultism. And of course, food. As our beloved and sleekly accessorized listeners well know, our heads are full of ideas for games. Uh, sorry, I can't hear you over all these game ideas. If you are anything like us, you've also got some great ideas for games bubbling in your cranial region. But unlike excruciatingly humble podcast hosting game designers like ourselves, you may not know what to do next. Atlas Games to the rescue. The White Box, created by Atlas Games and Game Playwright, is a game design workshop in a box. It contains a ton of generic components like meeples, cubes, dice, tokens, and discs. And includes a 200-page book of 25 essays about game design and publishing. With topics like... Refining your design. Playtesting. Crowdfunding. And how to work a convention. In short, the white box has everything you need to get your game idea out of your head and onto the table. You can get the white box right now everywhere tabletop games are sold. Seriously, I can't even hear you over these game ideas. During our live show, of course, we like to thank all of our Patreon backers. So if you're a Patreon backer, please stand to be thanked by us and everyone else. I'd also like to give a shout out to all of you wearing your Ken and Robin merch. Uh, so thank you for advertising our uh, merch at tpublic.com slash Ken Robin. Slash so, user slash, slash Ken Robin. User slash Ken Robin. So, uh, uh, Ken, yes, uh, you, you know what's about to happen. I do. Uh, our beloved Patreon backers know what's about to happen. It is the ceremonial nerd trope beginning of our live show in which I draw a nerd card from the custom deck made by our superfan Cal of Tate and from the suspiciously tall trope card. They, oh, there's some nerds. Yeah, I told you. Move the nerds over. Uh, well, it might be a mix. The whole system is broken now. Exactly. It's these physical cards. We need well, as Canada them. teaches us, two things that are different can never be united. Exactly. It's, it's, Vive it's, Quebec Libre! It's called the two solitudes, people, and, and we have two solitudes of nerd and trope cards. This whole system is broken. All right, yes. No, the system is perfect. Nothing's wrong with the system. Exactly. Merely the uses of the system. The Oh, that's been used again uh, before in a previous Gen Con, even. It's been used before. Here we go. <laughs> the nerd card, that big old nerd, Galileo. Galileo, ladies and gentlemen. And the trope card is, oh, that was also been used before, and dragons. Dragons. Wow. That's something of an easy layup, but what the hell. <laughs> All right, Galileo Galilei, for those of you who do not know, is a premier astronomer of the early 17th century, operating primarily in uh, Rome and the surrounding countryside, one assumes a hill outside Rome somewhere, where he and the newly invented, though not by him, telescope, 
are being deployed to the heavens for the first time. Galileo spots the four moons of Jupiter. He spots the rings or something like them around Saturn. I think he thinks it's a cloud, and uh, Christian Huygens actually detects that it's the rings, but let's not get into that. And more to the point, the orbital calculations that he performs with the aid of the telescope studying the moons of Jupiter convince him that indeed the Earth does move around the sun, and Copernican uh, theory is correct, that the sun is the center of the universe, not the stupid old Earth. And to make sure that he gets in his much trouble as possible, he writes a dialogue to that effect with the Pope cast as a character named Simplissimo. <laughs> and even in the 17th century, that was uncool. Yes. And especially if you live in Italy near Rome. It, it, it was an early tweet storm. Right. And it was not one of the good it was, ones. It was not ill-judged. Right. So, uh, Galileo is called up uh, to defend his argument uh, for heliocentricity. And there's a lot of abstruse uh, geometry involved. There's theological questions involving uh, scriptural citations. But it all comes down, in this version of the story, to the book of Job, right? In the book of Job, God is uh, answering Job. And Job says, hey, God, what's the deal? I'm cool. And God says, oh, yeah? Where were you when I hung, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook? Uh, hands up everyone who could draw out Leviathan with a hook. Oh, just God. <laughs> Job sucks it up and uh, the book concludes. In the argument, this is the argument that the stars are hung in the sky. It's a fixed sphere just as Ptolemy would say and a, ref- and a rebuttal to Galileo. And Galileo's like, well, that doesn't rebut anything. Uh, math, 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 math. And the Pope says, but have you drawn out Leviathan with a hook? And Galileo says, I don't understand your argument. And sure enough, the Pope at this point, in order to demonstrate for all time that the papacy is infallible, that Protestants are jerks, and that there is no stupid heliocentric theory, I, Pope Urban, will draw out Leviathan with a hook. Just like God. He calls up the dragon Leviathan to demonstrate the uh, solidity of papal uh, Ptolemaic knowledge and the flimsiness of stupid old heliocentric uh, geometry. And while it works in the short term, in the long term, we now have the Pope beholden to Leviathan the dragon. And this only exacerbates, perhaps even instigates the Thirty Years' War a little bit early. So you have the papacy and its dragon. Uh, obviously, everywhere in the Protestant world, people are saying, well, this is the dragon of Revelation. Come again, just like was promised by, to us by uh, St. John. That's what happens when they let you read the Bible. That is what happens when they let you read the Bible, when the Pope says, don't read that part about anyone who calls up dragons being bad. Um, but the Pope does have a dragon. So he unleashes the dragon upon his uh, interlocutors, uh, laying waste to uh, Central Europe and conquering the Germanies and Scandinavia and England and all the other pr- uh, troublesome areas uh, for uh, Catholicism to be enforced uh, by the dragon. Now, let's flash forward uh, 300 years or so. The dragon is still living there on the Vatican Hill, uh, the, all the papal treasure piled up under his little belly. Um, and if only, if only there were a few, uh, let's, let's call them a fellowship. <laughs> a, a, a few people who thought 
Is this a fellowship that's going to take a very long time to get together? Very possibly. So they're going to get be together very briefly. Exactly. And then they're going to split the party immediately. Right. I don't know any fellowship like that. <laughs> right. So uh, you would you might uh, gather say. Um, uh, a Protestant uh, magician who has uh, access uh, to a, uh, a magical uh, a world-altering wardrobe, for example. Maybe he's uh, involved, and he uh, goes out and he brings together uh, these uh, ancient heroes from uh, before uh, the papal times, or perhaps some sort of talking animals. I'm not the expert here. And the game, the the struggle would be these figures moving into Rome to destroy the dragon, overthrow uh, the dark uh, Vatican that was uh, summoned up, and incidentally, by the way, to restore the sun to the center of the world. Because the other thing that happens, of course, metaphorically, is as the sun fades out significantly, symbolically, it also fades out. So the uh, little ice age that is in full bloom, by the way, in the, in the mid-17th century, continues. You, uh, you have a world where... Um, not to be that guy, it is uh, always winter and never Christmas, except when the Pope says it's Christmas, uh, which is less and less because he's getting more and more of his advice from this dragon. Right. And it's stupid when all the Christmas stockings start to look like leviathans. Mm -hmm. and, right, know, yes. Yeah. It, it, the dragon days are much bigger. Yeah. Um, uh, and so the uh, uh, you, you can have a uh, fairly nice... I, mean, I think Charles Williams was actually Catholic, though, which is sort of a facer. But um, <laughs> maybe that's what you've got. You've got the, the, the secret society, the Inklings, attempting to overthrow this dragon. But maybe one of them's like, on the other hand, he is the Pope. And he did Charles Williams is the infiltrator. Is the infiltrator. Yeah. Charles Williams with, with is the infiltrator. Ghost stories. Right. Yeah. And his, um, uh, and his weird, um, uh, Arthurian, uh, Logris poems, uh, and his magical tarots. Uh, so yeah, you, you can have, uh, you can either do it as a straight up weird playing yeah. fellowship. Catholic. Right. Yeah. Right. And, uh, or you can, <laughs> well, anyway, uh, <laughs> or you can have a, uh, uh, actually that'd make a hell of a drama system game, right? Yeah. The, the inklings in the, in the, in the mystical dragon dominated, uh, Winter World, uh, and they're like, we should plot a, a plot against it. But even uh, Lewis, obviously high, high church Anglican, and uh, uh, Tolkien, I think, was also either Catholic or next best thing. So within them, their polls would be uh, religious polls. So you would have a lovely uh, religious drama system going on, or you can just do high adventure and kill a dragon on the Vatican and uh, liberate all the magical treasures, which is also good. Ladies and gentlemen, that's your nerd trope for Gen Con 2018. <laughs> In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity. 
caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? So I, I think this is probably our sixth live uh, Gen Con episode, and of course we've had as, as many live uh, Dragon Meat episodes, other live episodes. We finally come up with a new technology called the Index Card, uh, whereby our lovely audience has uh, put questions for us on the Index Card so we don't have that annoying bit where uh, we come up with a great joke that would be funny if we answered the question right away, but then we have to repeat the question for the microphone. So let's uh, all hear it for index cards. Uh, index cards! Uh, I believe next year's up-and-coming technology will be the spiral notebook. Um, you heard it here first. Okay, so Ken, uh, could you ask uh, the first uh, question? I will. I will ask the first question. Scott Akers asks... Robin, what is Big Rubble, and are you working on it? Man, Scott, your handwriting is eerily similar to Robin's. <laughs> uh, so uh, we just announced at the RuneQuest panel that, yes, indeed, I will be doing the uh, Big Rubble and Pavis books for the new RuneQuest adventures in Glorantha. Uh, so those of you who know RuneQuest know that those were the uh, uh, fabled box supplements back in the day. There's a, uh, uh, it's a city setting uh, next to a uh, big set, a big rubble of uh, these uh, ruins that are full of basically every interesting thing in Glorantha is somehow represented in this area where you can go and scrabble around and, and root for treasure and uh, get your uh, butt handed to you by a bunch of anthropomorphic baboons. Um, the uh, thing that's different now is that uh, in the new advanced timeline, uh, the uh, Argrath, the, the great uh, killer king who's going to change everything in Glorantha and the Hero Wars, has uh, started his career by uh, conquering the city of uh, Pavis and drawing out the former rulers, the, the, uh, the, the Lunars. And uh, so the idea with this one is basically uh, finally acknowledging the extent to which Glorantha is a spaghetti western. Uh, so uh, it, the, the war is over, at least the war for Pavis is over. Argraf has future plans that he will lead an army for. Uh, boy, does he have future plans. But for the moment, he's got an army that he doesn't know what to do with, doesn't want to pay him. He's, a, he's already working on the king thing. He's figured that bit out. And so he's, oh, what am I going to do with all of these guys? I'm also hoping that some of my guys will turn out to have weird powers that I can incorporate into my crazy new super magical uh, forces that I'm using to, to mow down the, the opposition. So why don't I let them loose into this uh, great, uh, basically giant field of uh, ruins that are full of 1,500 years of history and treasure. Every weird empire that ever existed left something super powerful buried it down there. And uh, maybe you will find one of those things and therefore later qualify to join my army. Or maybe you'll just get out of my hair and get killed. Hey, I'm Argraph, I don't care. So from the point of view of the characters, uh, if you want to play it in this one particular mode, you go in and uh, you, he gives you, I don't want to pay you, but I'll give you a chunk of the rubble that's yours to mine. 
so you get your adventurer's license, you get to go in, and then you get there and you find out that there's someone already there and they don't recognize your piece of lousy piece of argraph paper. And, uh, and so you have to figure, if you're lucky, you get a, a chunk of the area that mostly is full of other fellow ex-soldiers and adventurers and you can maybe work something out. Uh, but maybe it gave you a chunk of troll town. They really don't recognize his authority. And by the way, the elves and the dwarves and the trolls have some other big thing going on that they think is, to, to which the whole argraph business is but a footnote. Uh, so um, uh, that'll be two big books. That'll be uh, our ambition is to create something like the uh, like what you remember those two books being, which may be slightly different than when you uh, open them up again after 25 years. Uh, and so we're shooting for uh, next year with the first of those books, which will be Big Rubble. Brian Malcolm, Patreon backer Brian Malcolm, uh, says you've both expressed a love of dungeons. What do you know and love about dungeons today that you didn't know 40 years ago? So this is sort of a, an, uh, an expansion of our recent segment. of our recent dungeon segment. Um, I will begin by saying that my, I'm currently running uh, uh, 13th Age, uh, which is set in uh, the Hellenistic era, uh, so circa 272 BC. Uh, and I recently, uh, as everyone who has ever run an F20 game, started running out of encounters. And I thought, goodness me, goodness me, goodness me, if only I could take a pre-existing dungeon and reskin it as this past thing. And uh, I was talking to a beloved friend of the show, Will Heinbarch, uh, designer of the of the t-shirts, um, and I said, uh, they're in Ephesus, uh, in western Anatolia, uh, and historically, Lysimachus of Thrace, when he was besieging Ephesus, drowned out the, the old city of Ephesus, just turned the river around and drowned out everyone in Ephesus to force them to move into the new Ephesus that he had built. Um, in my setting, he didn't win, but he still drowned out old Ephesus. So there is a drowned city next to the real city. That's historical. I did not make that part up. And I said, is there a drowned city dungeon that I don't know about? And Will said, yes, Dragons of Despair, the first ever Dragonlance dungeon. And I said, goodness. So I ordered it off online, opened it up, and sure enough, it turns out that a thing I didn't know 40 years ago when I thought you had to make things up was you can take a dungeon that already exists, reskin it to whatever it is that you are uh, immediately concerned with, whether that be a historical time period or a feel or a whatever, and it works a treat. It works just as well as uh, a dungeon that you meticulously crafted. Because what hap- what matters in the game is the decision constraint and the immediate feel of the encounter. And since you're changing the immediate feel of the encounter throughout anyway, and the decision constraint is on the map. Everything else is just cream cheese. So I did not know uh, 40 years ago that I didn't have to build dungeons. Right. Uh, 40 years ago, I I sort of thought that the uh, plot and continuity was something that happened in between visits to the dungeon. Uh, And now I know to put those things, those um, emotional notes, uh, down in the dungeon as well as in the town that you go to uh, afterwards. Uh, Next question is from Patreon backer Ryan L. How does one mitigate... The murder hobo behavior common, it seems, to every con game as a player and or as a GM. Uh, so as a GM, uh, or I guess as a scenario designer, because that's not always the same person for a con game, I would recognize that a lot of people show up at a con game expecting to hit things in every genre, in any genre to which a murder hobo could possibly be said to exist. So make sure that you uh, have... Uh, things in front of people to hit 
that it is good for them to hit that makes them seem like sympathetic characters uh, and rather than uh, you know wandering maniacs. Yeah, I mean, I would say as GM, uh, design a scenario that is not amenable to murder hoboing that involves at least asking civilians questions before you find out who to murder. Um, and as players, be the change you want to see in the world. But as a realist, you're at a convention. Murdering and hoboing are literally the whole point. <laughs> Don't fight it. Thanks, Ryan L. Jared Logan asks, what is the worst historical era to live in that is the best to game in? Robin. Oh, let me give that some thought. Uh, well, it, any era that is uh, where everything is being, you know, shaken up, right? So, right. Uh, well, a war, right? right? Yeah. In the middle of a war zone. So whether it's a, a, a real, any real war, uh, you know, when the you know, the best time to live in for the samurai is the period where all the samurai are sitting around going, boy, I sure miss it when we used to have wars. And the worst periods are when they had those wars. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you don't want to be around any kind of war zone. And everything, the whole society goes... Uh, upside down. So, you know, think of the worst war and think of yourself as as being uh, adjacent to that war, and that's a, a lot of high drama, high stakes, and boy, I'm glad that's not my life so far. Yes, to uh, narrow that down, I would say World War II is the worst historical era to live in, certainly if you live in the war part of World War II, which most people did at one time or another, and it is obviously the best to game in because, holy crap, there's a million source books uh, the bad guys are ultimo bad guys. Uh, there's none of this, oh, I don't think I should shoot that guy in the face. Oh, right, he's SS. Bam, 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 bam. So much fun. Um, so, yeah, World War II is great to game in because orcs. Right. They gave us orcs. It's so nice of them. Good old World War II. Uh, next to that, I think Robin is, is correct that any war zone is, is particularly terrible uh, to live in. And also, people seem to forget that the Roman Empire was really terrible. I mean, barbarism, sure, it caused starvation and, and famine and, and, and uh, plummeting literacy standards. But the Roman Empire was uh, like Tokugawa Japan, only less nice. Uh, it was horrifically um, uh, uh, tradition-bound. Uh, it was ruled by a series of crazy people who every now and again would fight a civil war and take away whatever food you had when they weren't chopping off literally the right arm of everyone who resisted them. Caesar likes writes this down in the Gallic Wars. They're like, hey, check me out. The Averni stepped to me. I chopped off every man's right arm. If someone did that now, he'd be like, well, this has to have happened in, like, Rwanda or something. No, no civilized person would do this. Oh, right. Literally the heir to civilization. Mr. Julius Caesar, his own self, did that stuff. So, Roman Empire, bad empire, great gaming. Michael Manival, patron backer, Michael Manival, says, final exams suck. What is the best horror that me and my friends can summon to fix or to, oh, to fix our problems? So, uh, so, so you want a horror, uh, a horror to be summoned to stop you from having to write final exams? Is that okay? <laughs> All right. Okay. So uh, I would say an, uh, uh, an anti-literacy demon, uh, because then the demon can just summon up, and if it's, it's a demon that uh, eats words and thoughts and images that uh, it will then eat the contents of everyone's exam papers. They will all have been handed in. And you, having cleverly planned ahead to do this, you show up, you write your exam, but you know, you can just doodle all of your thoughts about the, you know, the Buffy reboot 
uh, down in your exam paper. Then the anti-literacy demon comes up and eats everything, and uh, all of the exam papers have been uh, translated into an untranslatable hieroglyphic uh, language, and uh, you know everybody has to get graded on a curve. <laughs> um, conversely, the other possibility is one of those demons that uh, carries within his uh, breast the chests of all knowledge. And you're like, hey, demon, um, really didn't study for econ. And the demon's like, econ? <laughs> Not even a problem. Let me fill you with all the knowledge of, yeah. tre- of treasure getting from hell. Yeah, that is, that is already the devil's discipline. Right. <laughs> and you show up and you um, uh, write the thing down in, in, you know, letters of fire, sure, but, you know, whatever. You turn in the exam paper and, uh, you know, best case scenario, uh, you get an A. Worst case scenario, the professor reads it and uh, immediately has their eyeballs melt out, uh, and then there's an investigation, but it's not about, you know, anything else, it's just about eyeball melting, and possibly uh, the demon has filled you with such uh, horrific uh, knowledge that you can use that to uh, manipulate the stock market, rise in power, and only about midway through your arc realize that as much fun as owning a yacht on top of another yacht might be... Uh, you did, in fact, sign away your immortal soul for a lousy A on Econ 202. Right. Uh, and, and also, another footnote, uh, don't ask the demons to do your stats paper. Demons hate stats. Demons hate stats. <laughs> Patreon backer with a uh, flare around it, Steve Segetti, asks, Canadians are known for being polite. Where did this stereotype, this hurtful stereotype, originate? <laughs> and who was the Ur diplomat of Canada? Robin almost has to answer this. <laughs> right. Uh, so it's, it's a, a, a combination of, uh, you know, it's a group of people who thought that the whole, this whole America thing was a little too excitable. And uh, especially the whole separating from the crown business. Uh, let's go even further north into a more inhospitable place to live rather than have a, a, a rebellion. Um, and, uh, you know, over the years, uh, you know, there's the Toronto story uh, where you know if if you uh, if someone bumps into you, you, you have to say, well, I'm sorry, right? That you uh, it's it's your way of acknowledging. I think uh, that we're all uh, uh, weak and fallen people in this world, but at least we have you know maple syrup and poutine, and uh, uh, you know it's a it's a pretty good uh, uh, system. And uh, I, I think, uh, but you know, not everybody is like that. Uh, some of us, uh, when we say sorry, we don't uh, uh, we mean screw you. And, uh, and you know, it's a, uh, there's, you know, Canada has dramatic holes. We have uh, Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau, so we have a, we have a continuum as well. Um, I would simply observe that, uh, Robin has to have me on his show to seem Canadian. <laughs> Ken, 
Who are the werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That Rena. sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Patreon backer John Kingdon asks, How did Donald Trump react when someone foolishly briefed him on Delta Green. Uh, no ca- uh, he immediately tweeted, No Cthulhu, no Cthulhu. <laughs> but he misspelled it Kofefe. Yeah. <laughs> Patreon backer Jacob Ansari asks... Are, I, I, and I gotta say, the index cards have upped your game, people. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, Patreon backer Jacob Ansari, or Ansari, asks, are there works of fiction that are significant inspiration for potential upcoming products like Declare for Nice Black Agents or The Last Days of New Paris for Dreamhounds? Robin? Uh, that you're willing to share. Right. Uh, nothing that we haven't revealed already. I mean, I will say right now that I have not apparently yet uh, managed to get Declare out of my head. I am still trying to exorcise Declare. And maybe there will be a project that will do that in the near future. Maybe not. Um, I will also say that uh, my response, as, as you may or may not know, when Robin uh, designs a game, my response is to design, design a game as a response to that game. And we do this back and forth in a long-form collaboration uh, Robin having made uh, the Yellow King, uh, developing the Quickshock system, my response, my immediate response is to turn to the collected uh, ghost stories of M.R. James, because I think that the Quickshock system is really, really great for Jamesian horror. And while I don't think that will be a complete response, that is probably the work of fiction that is a significant inspiration for the next part of that. Next question. Next question. Uh, Patreon backer Sam Noyce asks, if you could be a Cthulhu monster... Which one and why? Oh, the answer is the great race of Yith. You live in an enormous library. You cannot be killed. <laughs> and whenever you're bored, you just pop into somebody's body and screw around. <laughs> I mean, you know how much fun driving a rental car is? <laughs> Imagine driving rental Brad Pitt. <laughs> I, I can't possibly talk that one. <laughs> my, my second answer, of course, is a cat of Ulthar, because I own one. And right. I know how great his life is. <laughs> Patreon backer Bob King asks, Knowing what you do about the cult of Yith, 
Woo! Nice segue, Bob King. What canapes would they serve? A food slash mythos slash God knows what hut, Robin. Canapes uh, from the culture gift. Uh, I think the... I think one of their favorites is the medulla oblongata on toast. That's good. That's good. Although it's mostly millennial Yethians that eat that, right? Uh, <laughs> well, the, it, the oblongata toast. Um, I, I, <laughs> man, some people take millennia to catch up. I think actually that if you have a Yithian indwelling in you, uh, the thing that you that, that, that you serve, and the way you can tell, right? Uh, there was a, um, I forget what, what novel or something it was that when demons possess people, they go for the craziest, most powerful sensations, uh, because they aren't corporeal normally and they like get really high on it. So if you've got a Yithian and dwelling in you, I, I imagine that the, 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 uh, buffet table there has got like ghost chili pepper and super dark chocolate and, uh, pop rocks right. and all the things that will just like, really wake up the fact that you're in a whole different sensorium. Wow! And none of it is going to go together, but they're they're freaking cone creatures from the Jurassic. They don't have a palate. So it's like uh, foie gras s'mores. Exactly, foie gras s'mores. And, and so, when you when you go in there and they've got, um, uh, you know, uh, Cap'n Crunch and Merlot, then you're like, okay, this is the Yithians that are doing this crap. Patreon backer Lewis R. Evans asks, what system, supplement, or original idea would you recommend to model an RPG party gaining control of a city neighborhood by neighborhood? Uh, I think uh, Gar's Cthulhu City is the thing that I would use for that. Uh, so that's uh, a, uh, a setting where basically all of the, the mythos has kind of rewritten the whole idea of human cities and mushed them all together, and you're kind of lurking in the shadows in this horrible dark city, and that it would be fun to do sort of a you know, revolutionary, you'd have to come up with a way of, you know, we have an, uh, an elder sign, uh, uh, sort of plates, uh, like the, uh, you know, like, like the, t- like the B tile mystery. You have B tiles, except they have the elder sign on them, so that if you're able to sort of clear out enough of the area of, you know, your deep ones or your uh, Bayaki or, or your Shagas or whatever have you, you can then clamp down those tiles and lock down that section of the city, and that's protected. And then everybody tries to flood into that area of the city, and you, oh no, it's overpopulated. Okay, and so you you sort of go kind of block by block as you try to, and each time there's a new section of the city, you've got a different feeling challenge to to move your way through to turn Cthulhu City back into uh, all of the different cities. And so you might go, oh well, this we just want the Chicago parts. So let's start with the Chicago parts, and then uh, and then see if, you know if you kind of work your way through. There may be like a uh, a resonance between them, so you have to. Oh, we, we strategically, it'd be really great to get this chunk of uh, Philadelphia, but we don't have enough resonance. It's not Chicago part. We have to, and it's harder to get conquer the, this bit of Chicago because you know you know how deep ones love deep dish pizza. It's right in the name. It's right in the name. <laughs> you would have to build it because there isn't anything uh, specifically like it. But I would say that the things you would start with, the, the building blocks, would be Ray Winninger's Underground which had a system by which you used your character experience, you could choose, use it to make your character more buff or use it to change the social parameters of your neighborhood or of your city or of your society. So you're either you get x-ray vision or your, uh, your, your neighborhood gets a grocery store, right? And that sort of trade-off, that, that methodology of um, uh, 
uh, really literally sacrificing yourself to make your, your, your city better. It's part of what makes Underground such a great sort of social document as a game, but it's also a really revolutionary design that, like many revolutionary designs, has been ignored. Um, and then there's another uh, game supplement that is another masterpiece game supplement, again by our, our, our lovely friend Will Hindmarch uh, and Diverse Hands, uh, called Damnation City, which was a supplement for Vampire the Requiem, and gave you uh, mechanical representations of cities down to the individual building level if you wanted them, but you could go up to neighborhood level, absolutely, as they call them, I think, districts and that. But they would have various characteristics and various sliders, and you move them up and down based on how many vampires there are, how many this or how many that. You could take that sort of slider mechanic, you tie it to the underground earning points to improve it or doing activities to improve it because how do you get experience you do activities well just cut out the middleman you're never going to improve you're not going to get x-ray vision you just do the activity to improve the uh, slider in the given uh, city block and so if you combine damnation city and uh, underground I think you could build a pretty robust mechanical system by which you could reclaim whether it's Cthulhu City or you're trying to reclaim um, uh, Baghdad from terrorists or you're trying to reclaim uh, there, there's a game that I wanted to do for Gumshoe uh, and maybe will still do for Gumshoe uh, called Gagan Verwolf which would be uh, anti-insurgent warfare in, after the fall of the Third Reich where the, the Verwolf resistance uh, was actually werewolves uh, not stupid idiot uh, Hitler youth with rocket launchers uh, and, uh, and and big talking losers, which is what it mostly was. But if there's actual werewolves moving around in some German city, that makes it terrifying and awesome and fun. And so, uh, in that, there was going to be a block by block, you know, you know, whack a mole. Basically, you stop them, you know, in Charlottenburg, and they pop up in Moabit, and you stop them in Moabit, and they pop up in Wedding, and you stop them in Wedding, and they pop up in Potsdam. But that's the Soviet zone, and it's like, ah, oh, we can't stop them there. So that sort of mechanic, I think creates a great iterative play, and depending on how you set it, you set it on a, well, of course you can stop a popular revolution in a city. It's easy as pie. Everyone does it. Down to the perhaps more thoroughly play-tested, oh, you're screwed. <laughs> that, that's why you need the magic tiles. Exactly. That is why you need magic tiles. Uh, and that is uh, what I've got so far on block-by-block uh, -block reclamation. No, uh, this is a nameless question. What is the ideal cocktail for any or each of the Yellow King role-playing game books, and how about, uh, in a lanyap, or a buyback, I guess, a, a buyback, how about Fall of Delta Green? So, Robin, uh, you got four cocktails to my one. Right. Uh, well, obviously, you've got to do something uh, with absinthe for uh, uh, Paris. I'm not a, a huge fan of uh, licorice-flavored liqueur. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I have not yet actually... Uh, Done that, but I, you know, the, 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 the best absinthe cocktail that I've ever had is the Sazerac because it begins wash the glass with absinthe, then throw the absinthe out. <laughs> uh, I suppose I, uh, when the book comes out, I'll have to. There is an absinthery uh, around the, the corner from where I live, so I'll have to go and. Uh, what, what 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 do you mix with something sort of licorice? Um, I mean, traditionally just water. I mean, then that, you know, damps it out a little bit. You can go, you can go citrus, you can go acid. Uh, some people do gin and absinthe, which I, you would do not with a, uh, not with a botanical gin, but with like a, a super dry or an old tom. Um, and that, some people like that. Uh, I'm with Robin. I think that I, so we live like in the a, new world for a reason. <laughs> well, I, I think it has to be, I guess, like a, a limonada and, uh, and absinthe. Right. Uh, the second sitting is, uh, setting is the wars. 
Uh, and uh, I think that one is just, uh, it's probably something very simple. And uh, I, I guess that would probably be like your, uh, uh, that would be like your gin, that would be your gin and tonic, I guess. Right. Um, the aftermath. Uh, is the one that uh, Belgian beers are uh, the uh, patron alcohol of the aftermath setting because it's been uh, it's a, been a mercantilist economy that has fallen and all of the it's a detail of the world that uh, you know now new products are flooding in instead of all the crappy old castane products so that nobody wants to drink castane ale anymore they want to drink Belgian beers. So all of it, and the heroes of the novel get together and, and drink uh, Belgian beers and. Uh, uh, this is normal now would be uh, whatever the new uh, super hip thing is. So it would probably be like uh, an old-fashioned, but there'd be some stupid like pine resin thing and 12 <laughs> different botanicals. Or if you want something actually good, I guess it would be like a barrel-aged old-fashioned. And in uh, Fall of Delta Green, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a few possibilities. Uh, the standard drink of uh, action heroes in the actual 60s and novels, cheap novels set in the actual 60s, is uh, either scotch or bourbon. That, that's what they're drinking. This, would be, this is right before the bourbon crash, and it's well before the vodka resurgence. James Bond is like the only character in fiction in, in the West. I'm sure Russians drink vodka all the damn time. But James Bond is literally the only guy drinking vodka in fiction until the 80s. And he's a British guy. He's not cleared for Fall of Delta Green. Uh, so you, you would either do, you know, just, you know, two fingers of whiskey, two fingers of, uh, of, of bourbon. The, the great rye period in America is sort of going away by the 60s. Um, another possibility is, uh, you know, the, the good old um, uh, Singapore sling, right? That's very uh, service overseas. It's, it's exotic. That's coming in. The, the, that that, that uh, next wave of, of tiki cocktails is cresting in American living rooms all over. And then finally, uh, on uh, you know, in country, as they say, uh, what you're drinking is either whatever you can freaking get, or you're drinking some version of Iraq, which is uh, basically rice brandy. Um, and uh, it's made with varying different ingre- ingredients, depending on whether it's Indonesian or Salinese or Vietnamese. But it's the same horrible, garbagey Iraq, and you're drinking that probably with uh, canteen water and whatever red packet they, you know, you can you can get a hold of to mask the flavor. So um, Iraq and Kool Aid, I guess, would be the in-country version of the Fall of Delta Green. So you know, you you, you start you, in the optimistic Kennedy-esque bourbon, you move into the louche. Uh, Johnson um, uh, Singapore sling and you finish off just slugging back a rock as um, uh, Richard Nixon prepares to uh, disintegrate the social fabric above your head. And and, and then right on to heroin. Right on to heroin. <laughs> I see heroin not so much as a cocktail as an aperitif. <laughs> Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes 
two full-color rule books. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear, combat, dossiers. The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World. And of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? Josh Flora asks for Ken, the consulting occultist. How uh, how apt that the consulting occultist uh, closes out the episode. What are some of your favorite resources? Up my okay, research. well, this is this is actually uh, sort of a more researchy sort of question that is not super amenable to live. So Let's see what we can do. Okay, so what are some of your favorite resources for mystical mumbo jumbo? Do you have a reading list? Yes, off the top of my head, uh, a lot of it depends on the mumbo jumbo specifically. Uh, Lovecraft, of course, famously uh, found a copy in 1927 of A.E. Waits' Book of Black Magic, uh, Book of Ceremo- Pacts and Ceremonial Magic, or also marketed as the Book of Black Magic and Pacts. Uh, that contained a not great translation of some of the Key of Solomon, some of the Grand Grimoire. Uh, it was sort of jambled up together uh, by, not necessarily by weight, but uh, uh, that provides you with sonorous chanting. It provides you with cool names. It's what inspired all of the occultism in Charles Dexter Ward, for example. And as far as I'm concerned, it's hard to go wrong with good old A.E. Waite. Uh, that, that's strong if you're just going retro. You're, you're sticking to it. Uh, Crowley also is uh, magnificent as a, uh, as a source for uh, a gobbledygook. Um, he is full of it in every sense of the word, and uh, you can find endless litanies of ridiculous names in things like Library Logaeth or um, uh, Library Alvegis, a lot of the things that he has, he will bibble on uh, just as happily as anybody else. The old school grimoires, of course, are just litany after litany after litany of dumb name, but I'll tell you what, an underutilized source is something called the Greco-Egyptian Magical Papyri, and those have all been cataloged and translated in a two-volume set uh, in which I think one's the papyri and one is shocked academic commentary on the papyri. But in right about this time, this is when they're basically inventing the Western magical tradition. This is the first century BC through second century AD, give or take, in Alexandria. And these guys don't care. They will invoke anything. They invoke Egyptian gods. They invoke Greek gods. They invoke guys they've heard of. They invoke random syllables. They invented abracadabra just because they needed more cool random syllables uh, to hold a magical square in. They invoke the Virgin Mary. And you've right. not lived until you've read an invocation of the Virgin Mary to try and seduce your neighbor. Um, <laughs> anything that anyone has ever prayed to, they just dump it into the pot. Yes, new age syncretism is not <laughs> new age. New or yes, yes. Um, uh, and, and so the uh, the, the Greco Egyptian magical papyri have lots of goof names that no one's ever heard of, but they sound awesome and ancient because they literally are ancient. And they uh, are very practical. They're very pragmatic uh, magics. It's like, how do I find treasure? How do I kill my uh, best friend? How do I sleep with that um, uh, hot uh, guy across the street? Whatever it happens to be. And so uh, they have a, a sort of a pragmatic uh, quality to them, and the names are... Uh, uh, they're, 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 they're ridiculous, but they're ridiculous in the moment. It's not like a bunch of medieval uh, or worse yet, enlightenment cosplayers uh, making crap up. These are guys who are like, literally, I don't care. I just want to poison people. And uh, 
And so I would say, dig into the Greco-Egyptian magical papyri. Obviously, any of your books are going to have uh, lots of, of goofed examples. And uh, sort of to finalize it out, to close it out, I would say uh, there's a couple of uh, James Blish novels, uh, uh, Black Easter and uh, I forget the, the second one. It's uh, The Day After or something like that. Um, we'll fix it. We'll put it in the show notes. But uh, Black Easter is the main one. And uh, that's about a guy who is a uh, black magician. And he is hired by an arms merchant to uh, summon up every possible demon that he can. And uh, Blish went, and of course, Blish, being Blish, went nuts and did the research and found a bunch of things. But Blish, being a great writer, he took all those stupid uh, formulae and he made them sound better because he's writing a cool novel about a black magician who ends the world. So that, I would say, if you're looking for your one-stop shop, go get a copy of Black Easter by James Blish. Cheat and use those uh, invocations. Those are the from same sources that Wait used, but they have been polished by a master narratologist. Uh, do we have any index cards uh, still lurking in the crowd that uh, need to be passed up? Okay, well, we'll have to go old school then uh, for, a la- for a last few questions. So this time we will have to restate the question. Uh, so does anybody have any spontaneous questions? Okay, so the, the question uh, briefly encapsulated is, Ken, you seem to used to dislike vampires, but now you're on their side. What happened? <laughs> uh, nothing at all, Robin, he said, clutching his throat. <laughs> um, uh, I would commend to your attention a game that I just designed called Vampire the Masquerade, in which all the characters are monsters and horrible. <laughs> That's the point. It literally says a game of personal horror right on the game. It's about the horrible beast within you that drives you to serial murder. It's not a game about good guys. It may be playable as a game about attempting to recover the good guy you were before you became a vampire. Um, uh, I don't know that Hunter the Vigil is not still a better game. (laughs) Hunter the Vigil is a great freaking game. Uh, I think my Vampire the Masquerade is a pretty great Vampire the Masquerade. So I, 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 I'm kind of too close to it right now to sort of step back and say, I did a better job than Chuck Wendig. Um, I'm going to leave that to history to judge. Uh, but uh, absolutely, if you are going into Vampire the Masquerade and you're saying, I am playing the good vampire, you are not getting the dramatic juice that exists within that game. You can play, and I'm sure people have, and God knows people will, play games where they are the good vampire. And if they enjoy themselves, who am I to say they're doing it wrong? But that game is not about playing the good vampire. That is a game about being a monster, and what do you do about that? And uh, that is the, that, I mean, that's always been what vampire's been about. I didn't invent that. Mark Reinhagen invented that. So uh, I think that uh, people who see a contradiction there are perhaps not as familiar with Vampire the Masquerade as maybe they thought they were. Uh, next question. Okay, so the question is, uh, how do you know if you're in an alternate 1916? Uh, which is that uh, uh, France and Germany are a really great place to visit. Uh, <laughs> there's, uh, uh, there, there's this monorail that they've built uh, between the two countries. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really uh, picturesque and, and beautiful. And uh, uh, in, in France, they're very proud of their, uh, of their beer. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and in Germany, they don't just export their white wine, but they actually drink it. And, uh, 
and, and are very uh, proud of it and won't talk about its various dis, uh, distinctions. And, and beer in Germany in 1916 in this alternate world is disdained uh, because uh, it used to be in, in Germany that they thought that beer was food, and then but they realized in this reality that it's a beverage and, and now disdain it. The shorter and simpler answer... Uh, the, 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 there's a reference to my theory that uh, if you're uh, wondering whether you're in an alternate history, look up. And if you see a Zeppelin, then you are in an alternate history. In 1916, you may simply be in England being bombed by Zeppelins or in Germany sending Zeppelins over to bomb you. So if you're wondering, I'm in 1916, is it alternate? Go to a cafe and order white wine. And if they have it, if they have a German white, then you're in an alternate 1916. World War One ended the consumption of German whites by civilized man for 70 years. It used to be, if you, if you read Victorian novels, you'll, you'll read them uh, going on picnics and whatnot, and they'll always bring hawk with them. And hawk is basically just cheap, guzzly German white. And that was soda pop, because if you've drunk cheap, guzzly German white, it is soda pop. Um, and it was what everyone in the civilized world drank for lunch, because you don't want to fill up on lunch, you just want to have something light, so you drink German whites. German whites were globally present, and they were the global default, and then World War I happens, and Coca-Cola says, oh, now is our chance. And that's what happened. So if you're wondering, am I in an alternate 1916, order lunch. Uh, another question. Uh, so the question is, is Deathless China uh, for uh, Trail of Cthulhu uh, still on the Pelgrim schedule? And until such time as it comes out, uh, how do we fake it? Uh, that is not dead, which can eternal lie. <laughs> and with strange eons, even death may die. Having answered your question about the schedule, I turn to your question about the resources. <laughs> Um, there is uh, a couple of really good books, sort of true crime books, set in uh, uh, Beijing and Shanghai. I think the one in Shanghai is called uh, Two Famous Friends or Two Great Friends, something like that. The author of that book has written true crime books set in China in the 1930s, and I would probably begin with those. The Shanghai gang scene is so insanely convoluted and ornate and banana town that any book on the Shanghai gang scene will give you story hook after story hook after story hook. Uh, obviously, um, uh, uh, the Massive Nerlathotep has a whole chapter set in Shanghai. The new one, I'm sure, has an even better research chapter set in Shanghai. So, uh, not to uh, uh, praise our beloved competitors, but our beloved competitors uh, have the greatest thing set in Shanghai in role-playing game history. So, maybe take a look at that. And uh, take that, take uh, uh, any of the books about Shanghai gangsters, including the one by the author whose name I can't remember. I think it's French is his last name. And... Um, uh, yeah, start from there. And uh, if you get out of Shanghai alive, you've done better than my players ever have. Uh, so, uh, cross fingers. Uh, another question. Well, I think perhaps we're all in perhaps. an equal state of uh, Gen Con brain death. Is it, is it my imagination or is it just e even more intense uh, this year now that there's uh, so much more of it spread out further and that I think we're sort of dropping more brain cells as we go further and further in search of a secret washroom that nobody else has slammed. I'll bet Rich Ranallo has a question. Friend of the friend of the podcast, Rich Ranallo, author of uh, Velvet Generation. Ask a question, Rich. Uh, Restating the question, Rich Ranallo is a coward. <laughs> Thank you.
Uh, so so the, the question is, uh, what question have, have we been uh, never asked that we'd like to be asked? And I think for me, the question is, uh, would you like this additional Patreon donation in the form of <laughs> bullion or bearer bonds? <laughs> right. Is it, I've been waiting uh, for that. And, and never. Never has never. it been asked. Yeah, and the answer is bearer bonds because I'm flying. Right. I've luggage. <laughs> And um, uh, and frankly, it's just polite to ask. I feel. Yeah. They just show up. They give you the gold bar, and you're like, "Well, thanks, I guess." Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. I think I have uh, yet to be asked. Uh, hey, you know what? That I take that back. I have been asked. Uh, can you take the rest of this incredibly expensive bottle of bourbon home? Not by a Patreon backer, <laughs> but there's still time. <laughs> Uh, although, although not to hint heavily, some Patreon backers have also supplemented in the form of beautiful brown liquids. They, they, they have in yes. the past. Uh, this is not an invidious uh, judgment of current Patreon backers. <laughs> Just a expression of discomfort at being sober. <laughs> so we have a hand in the back who, God willing, has a question. So uh, what Patreon level or bottle of brandy is, or, or bourbon is necessary to get uh, nerd drug decks available for you may not have to bribe us in any way. Yeah. Uh, it, it, right now it's a matter of Robin, because Robin handles all grown-up things uh, dealing with the podcast, uh, getting in touch with Cal of Tate, uh, the designer of the Nerd Trope Cards, and uh, our uh, uh, graphic designer extraordinaire, Will Hindmarch, to get the cards Yes, we've had a couple out. of people volunteer to make that happen. Uh, as uh, as drive-through uh, cards, and so people are volunteering their free labor. Yeah, and so the question is just when I will have time to do any to coordinate it. Yeah, right. That. So uh, at, at some point, um, I guess all I can say is uh, keep sending Robin liquor until he caves. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, on that note, stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Atlas Games, Hell Grain Press, Atfagal, Dark Dream, Dark Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Start With Earth. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And He's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff! Yeah.